0: good afternoon good evening and welcome to the michael bryan podcast i'm your host michael a bryan and joining me today all the way from california is Ms. gloria goldberg gloria thank you so much for being here very welcome this is a podcast where i bring you interviews from leaders and teachers from within the yoga and the mindfulness based healing industry from all around the world so that they can share with us not only What has brought them to their practices but how they continue to hold true to those practices today so if you want to be a part of the momentum that we're building here on the michael Bryan podcast please feel free to go down below subscribe to this youtube channel as well as share this podcast with your other yoga loving and mindfulness loving friends but more and more people can hear about the amazing work that these teachers and practitioners are doing now Gloria, once again, I'm so thrilled to have you here. I'm, I don't think that you recall, but the first time we met was, I think it was the Menses. Lois was having a Menses program a couple of years ago, and you were there, and, and a lot of people were there, but you were there. And do you remember the sort of shoes that you wore that year? No. <laughs> You had you had a pair. I, I, I don't remember if they were uh gold or if they had sparkles or there were there was something
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> I still have them.
0: <laughs> there was something really unique about your shoes, and and everyone was so fascinated. And they were like, oh, my God, that's Gloria Goldberg. And do you see her shoes? Her shoes are so amazing. And so, and so both you and your shoes were definitely uh, one of the highlights for me that year. But I'm, I'm so thrilled to have you here because I know students of yours who speak about you so highly. And Lois, my teacher, has spoken about you so highly. And I'm really happy to be able to sit here and have this conversation with you.
1: Thank you. Thank all of them.
0: <laughs> You're very, very welcome. All right. So so Gloria, first thing is you are in, you're no longer in La Mesa, but you're now somewhere else in California. Were you are you a native Californian?
1: No, I'm um I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And then my parents moved uh due to job moving to Chicago. So um and so I went to uh, school there. I guess you'd call it, they don't have middle school there, so uh, high school, and then went off to college in Peoria, Illinois, and then returned to Chicago after a while. I stayed in Peoria for a while teaching um, elementary school, and then um, returned to Chicago, and then sometime in 1973 friends of mine were moving to the west coast or going to the west coast and my other friends said you should go with them because you don't belong here. You belong in California, so I went and. um, That is pretty much. uh, I guess you could say that's pretty much my life is flowing with the river of the universe. If it's right, it flows easy. If it's not right, obstacles come in your way. And if there are too many obstacles or if there's an obstacle that you have to, not that you shouldn't work on obstacles, but some obstacles are such that they're saying, this road is blocked for you. Don't come here. So um when it's easy, it's easy and you know go with the flow, they used to
0: say. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Now, Gloria, that's so interesting because it sounds like you already had a teaching background and you said you were teaching elementary school, and that's something that you got into while you were still living in Peoria. So what led you into teaching as a profession to begin with
1: i went to college because my father wanted me to go to college i didn't go to college because i wanted to go to college i wanted to go to work but okay so i went to college and i took psychology courses education courses and ended up with a degree in education and minor in psychology so and then um Peoria was okay, so I got a job, you know, from you do student teaching, and the school offered me a job uh, teaching there. So I did. I stayed. Um, I was there for maybe teaching there for two years, and then I returned to Chicago. My family was there. And I started working there, not in, well, in education, but in in government, actually, Um, in the 70s, there were these uh, CETA programs, they were called CETA, and I can't even remember what it stood for. Um, And we were uh, hired to oversee that the programs that were given money to do certain things, to accomplish certain things, actually did those things. So um, I did that and did not make many friends because I'm one of those people who turn people in when they don't. (laughs) (laughs) they don't aren't you know they're taking taxpayer money and they're not doing what they're supposed to do and we're supposed to report that so I did don't make friends that way
0: (laughs) it it doesn't sound like it but it (laughs) (laughs) definitely but it it, it definitely is an interesting (laughs) follow-through of just in terms of the Ayengar yoga that we're ultimately going to come and talk about, the fact that you already have this background in education, because I think it's so important for people who teach to actually understand how to teach. And I think within Ayengar yoga, we're really keen on teaching people how to teach. But how do you think your teaching background would have impacted your ultimate Life's decision to teach Iyengar yoga.
1: I don't think it did it at all. I, I really don't. And I want to correct your statement about, um, in Iyengar yoga. Uh, we. How did you put it? I forgot how you just put it about our.
0: We. I. I think I said. I think I said We, we teach people how to teach
1: actually we teach people iyangar yoga we teach people yoga and this is how it should be people uh, uh people learn and because they love what they're learning they want others to uh they want to share that love and that energy and whatever they're getting out of the uh subject that they're studying. And so one of the ways to do that is to teach. Um, I never decided to teach. That wasn't a uh, Goya didn't sit down and go. I think I'll teach yoga. I, um, I was a student, I was a student for many years. Uh, my first experience with yoga was in uh, probably 1969 uh, when I decided that I needed to do something to help myself be a healthier person because um, I'm asthmatic. Once you're asthmatic, I think you're always asthmatic. Even when you have no symptoms and you've been you know, free of asthma, attacks and everything. Thank thank you. And um, uh, so I went and I was still living in Chicago and these new stores started to open. They were called health and nutrition shops or stores. And uh, so I went into one near my house and was perusing through the books. And I found a yoga book, Hittleman's 28-day yoga exercise plan. Which sounded just fine with me, because it was twenty eight days I could give it a try, and a nutrition book, which um, helped me to become you know made me see that diet was really important in how that affects your uh biology and therefore your health and well being and uh, took me, th- I don't remember the name of the book, took me through stages of you know, becoming a vegetarian so that you're not uh, going, so to speak, cold turkey with no turkey. So um, I, uh, I took those books and went home. And at that time, um, I had changed jobs and I was working at night actually, nights. We started at six, finished at two in the morning, three in the morning. And then fellow people you work with, we go out for breakfast because it was morning. And then I would go home, do whatever I needed to do. And then I practice. And so now it's like 30, 7 in the morning. So um, and I did that practice each day, day one, day two, day three to day 28 and start all over again. On the 29th day, go back to day one. And, you know, I did that for months. And the thing is, is that repetitive practice, and I knew nothing about the philosophy of yoga, but I found that repetitive practice made the practice uh, freer, easier, uh, less effort, effortless as we went along. But I also learned So whether there was something in me or, I I don't know how to explain it, but um, whatever asana at the time I was doing, I felt what was going on in the doing. And I could feel when something didn't feel right, so I would experiment to see what felt better. So for many years, I was taught by a book that I didn't know much about, and and me, or whatever that teacher is inside. So, you know, for some, I think teaching is within you. And for others, it's, Teaching is very difficult. It, it's as though it's something that you have to follow some pr- prescribed regimen or something. But Guruji never taught to us like that. You know, his his important his for teaching to him was teach who's in front of you, and they will guide you so it's really the student i mean once you understand what you're teaching and and why you're teaching it what you see in front of you will give you the feedback for what to teach next or and we call that correction or adjustment or nowadays of course and then i i knew nothing
0: so so gloria this this path from finding what was it Hiddleman's 28 day yoga, yoga That's
1: <laughs> they, it's still one of the major books sold today wow and it was long you know I'll talk to people and I'll share that with them and they go I started with that book too <laughs> you know so um you know and that was in the in the 60s late 60s early 70s and you know Maybe only a very few even had heard about BKS or I, I don't know exactly when Patricia or I don't remember. Maybe you remember when Lois started because she was very young. Um, by that time in the 60s, I was in my 20s, late 20s. Um, so, 44, 54, 64 is 20, and late, yeah, 69, I was in my late, I was 25. So, and then going into the 70s, you know, by 74, I was 30, and I had just moved to California and only been here a year. I uh, went with my friends to LA, and uh, I left LA the next day. There was no reason to be there. <laughs> It was just too intense. And, um, and I moved to San Diego. My friend had a sister here. And so um, I was able to, you know, be with her at the beach, which was very nice. It was. It was very nice. So, and I started work there after I did whatever work I could. And then I applied for a job at a at the ocean beach community center as a social worker. So I had a degree in education and psychology and um, and I seemed to be able to organize things so so they hired me. It was a, a big job at $450 a month. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: wow. Oh. And, and even back then was that 450 dollars a month considered to be a little bit of money
1: no it was considered to be you know average i mean even when i was teaching elementary school in peoria we made like 900 a month teachers never got paid well so <laughs>
0: So at, at what point in time between between Hiddleman's 28-day yoga exercise plan and you doing that by yourself, at what point did you come into Iyengar Yoga? What was that journey like?
1: So I was in San Diego. I was living in San Diego and working at this community center. And um, one of the co-workers, a young man, and oh, I started I did start teaching. I didn't know what I was teaching at the uh, uh, community school. I would teach once a week some yoga classes to whoever. And one of the students and a you know, neighbor in, in Ocean Beach said, you have to come to this class. I'm going to this yoga class and it's amazing. And it you have to be there tomorrow morning at 6.30 in the morning. So I said, okay. So I was there at 6.30 in the morning and the teacher was Jenny Snick Levins, a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And um, uh, that was it. It just struck me that this was what I was looking for. It was detailed enough, it was, movement enough, it was still enough, it was uh, interesting and, you know, everything that you could want to have at 6.30 in the morning till eight o'clock and then go to work. So um, every morning that they had a class at 6.30, that's where I was and then um, Maybe, I don't know, sometime during the six months later or something, I wanted to add a class. And so I asked to be able to attend class with Mary Dunn because she was the senior teacher there. And, um, And so I did, I went to class there also. And I think I told you when we were talking earlier that I really hadn't been teaching. I certainly hadn't been teaching Iyengar yoga and I never thought about teaching Iyengar yoga. It just seemed like you had to have years and years and years of understanding and um, practice before you could become a teacher. Sometimes I guess, and this has happened to me also with a student or two. Um, the teacher sees something in you or something about you and either suggests to you, you should become a teacher. Or they do something interesting, like I told you Mary did. And we got towards the Sarangasana class, which is towards the more the end of class. And she said, oh, I forgot. I have to leave. I have to go. Gloria finished teaching the class, which I had no idea. She said, teach Sarvangasana and some variations and Shavasana and you'll be done. So I did. Um, She didn't have to go anywhere. She was watching from outside the door. And so she said, she told me, You ought to consider becoming an Iyengar teacher. But of course I had a job that um, the social work job that took me from the community center to a more uh, in San Diego there was this organization called the Community Congress of San Diego and so I became affiliated as employed there also as a um, I was trained to be the chief financial officer. So, you know, I was doing that and I was happily going to classes. I didn't need to teach. I never thought about teaching. I heard what she said, but that was the end of it. Because I had this job. But then I also decided I want to go back to school. To get my master's degree. And all this time, of course, in the universe, this was a time of nuclear affinity groups. And I belonged to one, and they were building this nuclear power plant on the coast here, which is now closed because never should have been built in the first place. But, and, um, I was very much into ecology and so I um, left San Diego and went to Vermont and went to school at Goddard College in the the master's program that they had there in social ecology. And I spent the next five years in, in Vermont and New Hampshire. And I finished the program there and i um and that that was great i learned i learned a lot there were five major subject areas that we had to uh learn in learn about and um and then write you know a master's thesis and um, my master's thesis was on um Anarchy in organizations. So, uh, and then while I was there, you know, people wanted to do yoga. One of the five subjects was holistic health, and part of that also would include yoga. So, I just taught the classmates what I knew and how I how I had learned also. So, um, actually, when I got to Goddard and was placed in the dorm room this was interesting also I guess on the bed was light on yoga and I just looked at and I had no idea where it came from or how it got there or but it was my bed so you know some things are not explainable in this life and so that guided me from then on, you know, and I'd been to those Iyengar yoga classes for already two years and then spent five years studying the book and practicing and there was nobody then at those, as far as I knew, teaching Iyengar yoga in Vermont at that time, in the um, late, late 70s and 80 and 81 to 83 I guess I don't know somewhere in there in the 80s to 85 somewhere in there and then um, decided to um, I was with a man at that time and we decided to have a child my son was born in 86 here in San Diego so we had come back to San Diego because his family lived here and um so I was here two weeks after my son was born, um, his father got a job in LA. So I had to go back to LA. <laughs> we lived up on a mountain top in a park because he was the park um, manager. So, um, and uh, when we had been in san diego i had returned to the Iyengar yoga center where mary had been teaching but now she had left and gone to the east coast and um but continued to take classes there and um of course did Iyengar yoga all during my pregnancy and um and uh Then when we moved when we moved to L.A., my the teacher here, Ariane, had said, you know, you should connect with Bonnie Anthony in the L.A. area. She actually lived in Pasadena, lives in Pasadena, and um, study with her. So she became my mentor, and she taught me about teaching. Uh, she, uh, she also had a fairly close relationship with. BKS Iyengar and Gita Um, Guruji had stayed at her house um, during conventions that were held, or when he was ever on the West Coast, and um, and I had been there, you know, also. So in eighty six, I received my no eighty six, my son was born eighty eight I received my uh introductory level certificate so now I had been studying almost ten years nine years
0: and within that time within that time gloria, what was that relationship with a mentor like because when did when did the certification structure really become solidified in terms of the system that we've just left with the intro one and two? When did that happen?
1: Oh, not for a while. Uh, When I was certified, how I was certified was um, there were certain people in the country who Guruji had given permission to certify, to assess people and let him know who they were. And then he would send them you know, a certificate um, or recent certificates. I don't remember exactly how that occurred. But there were uh, several, three teachers, I believe, maybe more, I don't remember exactly, in Southern California um, and a few in Northern California and on the East Coast, who were given Mary, Ariane, Bonnie, Francie, Ricks. Um, I don't exactly remember who, who might be others. Couple people who are no longer in the system. And what they would do is uh, when you decided that perhaps you were ready to be assa- assa- assessed. They came to your class. Someone came to your class and took the class, but they didn't tell you when they were coming. They just showed up. A much better way to do assessment. Uh, You know, but the whole there were there were there were you were mentoring, there were no teacher training programs. Um, And so They came to your class and that they decided it was you were teaching Iyengar yoga and you were appropriate at that and everything you they passed you. so. um, And then you could teach. And say you were an Iyengar yoga teacher, so the mentoring at that time, I would go to Bonnie's classes drive all the way to Pasadena um from i don't know where we were north hollywood or something and um twice a week i think and um take class and sometime in the middle of class she would say you know gloria whoever else she was working with teach this pose and then we would talk about it after the class if there was something to talk about you know there's always something to talk about so um and and that was really the program and then she you know let me know that let them and i think she actually let them know that they should go and assess me so it was very different then so and at that time by that time in the late 80s um there were already regional associations. I think at the time there may have been eight or nine had popped up around the United States and they were fairly independent. Um, Of course they were independent, you know, and they chose their areas and they chose their territory and they had to uh, become 501 um, c3 that's non um, nonprofit educational associations and but everybody all associations had the same purpose and that was to um, teach promote the art science and and philosophy of yoga according to the teachings of bks Iyengar So when I got to LA, there was already an association there and that association actually ran an institute, the Iyengar Yoga Institute of Los Angeles. And there was an institute at that time also in San Francisco. And then there was one being established on the East Coast and they were all, I think, pretty much founded with Mary Dunn's um, help, encouragement. And um, I didn't know a lot about that. Uh, you know, I heard people talking. I knew there was strife or whatever you want to call it. And, um, and so after I was certified, um, Bonnie had suggested that I go to a board meeting and, you know, offer whatever I could having been in nonprofit organizations since the 70 70s in San Diego. So um so I did and um then it was decided to hold a convention. There had already been two two conventions, Ayanga Yoga conventions. The first one was an international one in nineteen eighty four in San Francisco, and then the next one, I think, was in 87, which was in Boston. And then the next, so every three years, the next one, 90, uh, we agreed would be held in uh, San Diego, at least or at least on the West Coast. Then eventually, it was decided in San Diego. And we had a group of six coordinators to put this together. So there was, uh, you know, a nice group of people working together to make this happen, and um, so that happened. And there's so much that went into all this. I don't even know what to include, what not to include. So,
0: well, well, Gloria, one of the things that you mentioned as being very important for you was the mentorship component and i heard you also mention that the way in which they assessed by just coming to your class was something that really was beneficial uh, or that you felt was really beneficial at that time what are some of your thoughts after having been in the system for so long regarding mentorship or how do you approach mentorship within the context of your own teachings
1: well I you know it's very different now because we're on Zoom. And I may have a class that I call a mentor class, but all the people in that class have studied with me for years. And so I can, you know, I think I can work with them on online. New people, I really don't take new people into that. That class um, to and I do have another class that's more a beginning mentor class, I guess you could say, but i've worked with those people. they just live in a different city, but i've gone there and taught for several times, many times. Uh, my colleague Aileen, lived there lived in las Vegas <laughs> and um, uh, so i've I've known those students, and I know that the few of them and there are There were three of them, and they really wanted to study. And Eileen was spending more time in Israel. And so I agreed to work with them online on the condition that they attend class. So, and, you know, Zoom made it very easy for them to attend class. So before all this happened, I was actually going to Las Vegas, you know, for a weekend to be with them once every other month. But to really mentor, you have to be in the class, be in the room, be with, pe- be with the people who think they want to teach. You know, I think one of the hardest things, and I know it's hard, is to be able to say to somebody, after they've studied for years, as students, they're great students. Some people just are not meant to be teachers and it's okay. He, that You know, Guruji said he was a student his whole life. Gitaji would tell you the same thing. Prashant says that also. Be a student. Avijata says the same. We are all students. You can't possibly know the vastness of this subject even one lifetime or be able to apply all of it in all of its nooks and crannies uh, you know, and understand it, understand it all. So be a student and be a student first. You know, if you think about teaching, like teaching elementary school or teaching any level of school, you, elementary school, you have to love little kids. Okay, that's the first thing. And you have to love helping them to learn or get joy out of the fact that they're learning and they're getting joy out of that fact also. And when that's not happening, stop teaching. Um, Teachers who teach specific subjects, I think, they have to love the subject. How do you love the subject? You study first. you learn about the subject you You um engage in all the nooks and crannies of the subject as best as you can, either with guidance, or you know if you happen to be a self-learner, you can do that you know on your own to a degree, I guess, you know, and working in groups and with other fellow students um, and having conversations, especially about yoga, yoga philosophy is is really important having that interaction. So if you're studying a particular subject, like I said, you you have to love that subject to wanna teach that subject and be good at teaching. In that subject can't just teach a subject because, oh, everybody's doing yoga, I think I'll teach yoga or everybody's teaching math, I think I'll teach math, it, it, it just doesn't happen. So it, it doesn't work that way, I don't think. Um, you have to be engaged in the subject and want to help others learn the subject. And Guruji says the subject of yoga starts with learning about yourself, about your own physicality and uh, all the dimensions of that, those layers, which, you know, when you first start, you know nothing about, but it doesn't matter. Because like that first class I attended, of course, the teacher was wonderful, but something happens to you inside that makes you want to be there the next class. And nothing distracts you from wanting to be at that class. So this is called disassociation, vairagya. So the vairagya, we see of it as uh, restraint or um, But in life, what it is, is that you make a decision to be someplace or to do something, you do it. Whatever else comes your way, your friends may say, oh, you know, let's go to breakfast early. We'll have a breakfast meeting and then we'll go to work. And you have to be willing to say no, because it's more important for you to be in that class, or in anything. If it was more important for me to be at that meeting, then I wouldn't be in the class. But you make a commitment to be in class whatever number of times a week on a certain day of the week, and that's what you do. So you're separating yourself in a way. To do yoga, you're separating yourself. And for many people early on, I think, at least for me, for many years you you might be separated from family and friends because they don't understand this what is now taken for granted as if everybody does yoga we know everybody doesn't but it's so popular it's such a money maker that it's no longer seen as something odd or unusual or you're getting into some kind of a cult or you know as it was in the 70s, even the early 80s, and before that, I'm sure. So, and it, so in that respect, it's not it's not an easy path. Now, whether you consciously choose that path or not, for some reason you're on it. You know, I can't say I consciously chose it it was there, something inside felt, this is absolutely correct, the correct place to be. So who knows what that is, past life, something that takes you, I don't know.
0: This concept of being on a path, Gloria, I think is, is really something important when, We think about Iyengar yoga, but also when we think about any form of spiritual sadhana, that you take it up as a path that you do no matter what, and that you carve that time out for your sadhana no matter what. And that through that studentship and that student and mentor relationship, that something occurs within either yourself or within the mentor that says, hey, you know, I think you should take this a step further and consider becoming a teacher within the system or whatever it is you're doing and what I want to ask you in relation to that is I know that you've been an assessor before and you've you've been a mentor but you've also been an assessor and what is that thing that you look for when you are assessing a student in order for you to feel a sense of confidence and ease regarding that student carrying on the legacy of BKS Iyengar?
1: Oh boy. Um, It depends on the level that I'm assessing. You know, what you expect out of someone out of high school is not the same as you expect from someone who has just graduated college or graduated you know, a master's program or a doctorate or a specialty beyond doctors, you know, Guruji would often relate, he would say level one is high school or introductory level was graduating from high school. So when you think about it that way, you know, but how it relates to his teaching because he's always insistent Had has always as long as I've known him and been in contact with him, which started in 1988 when I was fortunate enough to be able to be sponsored to go to Pune. And that's a long story too. Um, uh, Mixing methods is unacceptable to him. And it's interesting because when you assess, You can see when people are mixing methods. It's very difficult to start in some other school of yoga and been there for, you may have been there for years and then decided to take up Iyengar yoga and think that immediately you can, you know, become an Iyengar yoga teacher. It's almost impossible. Impressions follow you. They follow you, and they they come out in our they come out in our teaching. They come out in many different. They come out in our practice. Um, you can't be teaching Iyengar Yoga in one class and some other school of yoga in another class in the same building it just doesn't it's you know but that was his insistence so you know we all those of us who assess and become teachers we really have to understand what distinguishes iyengar yoga from other schools of yoga and there's all kinds of things you can look for you know starting from the base understanding direction. I mean, he gave a whole list of things, knowing that the foundation of Iyengar yoga is standing poses and inversions, and many other schools eliminate the inversion. So, you know, you have to, and the teachers have to be strong in those asanas, which is why, you know, To be be assessed, you have to have been a student of Iyengar yoga for a certain number of years. Uh, You have to be recommended by one of your teachers or who you consider your mentor, perhaps, uh, that they feel you're ready. Hopefully therefore you have been teaching in front of them. Guruji at one time said he doesn't want anybody teaching, calling it Iyengar yoga until they were certified so you could teach and our recommendation always was that you're teaching under the guidance of a certified Iyengar yoga teacher, uh, which means a lot of work for the teacher or the mentor or that the mentor has confidence, knowledge that what the a mentoree is going to be teaching, they've taught in front of them and can teach and not talk to nobody, but to talk to other people in the class you know in a class that let's say I would be teaching and i'm asking them uh, asking them to teach so um so that gives you the confidence that they they'll be able to teach so i don't know if I've answered the question i've already forgotten it
0: <laughs> <Sorry>. well, <laughs> Well, well, you, you definitely have laid a, a great foundation for that. The, the question was, what do you look for oh, when, right. as, as an assessor in terms of a person who you're assessing to say that this person knows and has Iyengar yoga in their bones?
1: So um, one of the ways is how they practice. You know, an Iyengar yoga assessment, you have to do a demonstrated practice. And, and you know poses are pose is called out, and the teachers are watching you. And that's true even in the new system. Um, part of the new system is we all practice together, assessors and candidates, uh, based on a particular situation that we're given. Let's say, um, and then there's a demonstrated practice of everything except inversions not everything, but as many poses as possible on the syllabi that you're assessing for. And then separate, now anyway, separate was an inversion practice which the candidate designs themselves and has a certain amount of time to, and they just do their practice and the assessors will be watching. Previously, the inversions were part of the demonstrated practice. So the demonstrated practice was almost two hours And uh, sometimes longer, and now that's kind of divided up into two separate uh, teachings, and um, which is great, fine. Um, But are you at at the that level one? Are you strong in your standing poses? I just want to say, do you glow in those standing poses? There's a certain, you know, you're steady you're stable, you're open, you understand you're, you know, we uh, you're properly aligned right side, left side, uh, tailbone to the crown of the head, all the things that you would look for as a teacher. um, We're looking for, you know, and your teaching should do that. Also, your teaching doesn't come from here. It doesn't come from a list you make of points. It doesn't come because you're gathering points. Everybody gathers points. Um, what it's interesting because what you can't, what you think you can, re, what you think you can't remember, appear. Your cellular body does, um, if you actually took it in when you were given that instruction, which makes you have to be in class, totally present. That's part of alignment: is being present in the class in the classroom, uh, whether you're teaching or you are a student in the class. You have to be present, you can't let the mind wander, and you're there to learn. Kshant would tell us, and Guruji told us also, class is where you learn, home is where you go home and practice. Like learning a musical instrument, you go to a lesson and you do the lesson, and then the instructor says to you, shows you some new chords or whatever your or a new song, and you start playing it. and it does It doesn't come out so good, so the teacher says, "Go home and practice, and we'll go over this again next week." And so you know, as young people, every day you would practice, You'd practice your piano or your violin or your clarinet, whatever you took up. Typing, you have to practice every day to get fast and accurate. Um, uh, You have to have a home practice. And that's what shines through, not just being in class week to week, or even, even if you went to class every day, it's not the same. And then in your teaching, we teach from the foundation the head so whatever's on the floor is the foundation and whatever's up in the air is close to heaven and that's where you're aiming for so um and we teach like i said to who's in front of us so you're not rattling off a bunch of instructions sometimes we do as reminders because no one could think that fast um but when you're first teaching at that lower at that beginning level you have to teach in such a way that the students are going to comprehend grasp hold onto what you're teaching so teach something take a breath teach the next take a breath so the student has enough time to actually make what it, go into their head go through their body Make the thing happen. And as a teacher, you have to see this. And as an assessor, you can see this happening. You can see this happening. So as an assessor, you have to be as attentive as you want the teacher to be attentive to the teaching. So. You go to the next level you know and guruji gave us guide guidelines you know the old system there was a syllabus for each and that syllabus really hasn't changed a few things have been switched around to make life interesting and more um for the young people <laughs> because there's this idea that only the young start at the intro level but that's it's yeah. not true you know we have um And maybe Iyengar yoga, you know, has a, what people think is a negative. I don't know why, you know, because a lot of older people, but if you look at the older people who are in Iyengar yoga and what they can accomplish and the alignment that they have and the, how they feel about their lives, you know, and they're not crying because they're 70 anymore, you know. And not wishing they were younger and they're not going to get facelifts and you know whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. And teachers should not feel that because they don't have 20 and 30 year olds in their classes, that there's something wrong with them. Again, teach who's in front of you. Help them. That's our job. Whoever comes to you. And what happens when you first start and nobody comes to you? yay you have an opportunity to practice you have that space you're going to be there in the room anyway teaching might as well and nobody's there practice and then for the next level he gave other instructions and he guided us with a syllabus for reading of things to read and asanas to do and pranayamas to asanas to practice and uh, pranayamas to learn and to practice everything to learn and to practice and to learn what on the previous syllabi is helping you to accomplish or practice these new asanas on the next syllabus and the next syllabus and the next syllabus but not to be jumping ahead because then you miss those Stages, and even in light on yoga, some of the asanas have stages. They have stages of learning. Some of them have four stages, and there's four pictures. Every picture is a stage, <laughs> and you have to learn them. Utita trikonasana. From tadasana, the first step is jumping your feet apart. There's a lot to learn in utita hasta parasana. Standing on your own two feet with your feet apart is different than standing on your own two feet with your feet together. Arms out to the side. How to hold those arms up so they don't get tired? Is your head on straight? Is the crown of your head over your tailbone or your tailbone under the crown of your head? You know, all those things to be able to see and understand. Parshvahasta padasana. Next stage of uttita Trikanasana, Turning your feet turn, you know, without turning your torso, without changing the uh, structure of your pose, keeping yourself even on both sides again, and finally going into that movement of going into utita Trikonasana and observing yourself. And you start with simple things, you know, press your back heel, maybe press the front foot big toe mound, are they both happening? Draw the femurs up into the sockets. Can the teacher see that happening? Yes. Teacher can see that happening. You're a teacher. You can see that happening. Yes? yes? Yes. Is the tailbone in the right place? Is the head in the right place? If not, everybody comes out. You might even do the other side before you do correction. Or you can correct right away. You know, it depends how how you choose to. To do that. Teaching both sides gives the student the opportunity to observe themselves on both sides, because at the same time you're teaching them how to observe themselves. And if nothing else, yoga is self-observation. Yes, you can do all the poses that you want. You may do them you know fabulously, but if you're not paying attention, you're not aware, you're not conscious of of being and becoming that pose. It's not yoga. And so this ha- and we expect different things at different levels. And so even in the written exam, you know, questions are asked that are appropriate for those levels, an assessment at the junior level. Um, what was the junior level, now level two, you know, um, level one, there's nobody with any major problems, nobody with any problems. And there's no menstruating ladies in class. At the next level there are, and you have to take care of them. So now here's a teacher who has to be able to, you know, be in two places, if not three at one time. Um, Next level, here in the new system, it's uh, level three. In the old system, it was the senior levels. Senior levels, Guruji in 2009 said, it's, um, it's the level that you can be doing yoga therapy. If you have been doing yoga therapy approved, because you were allowed to do that when you were junior three, um, you can continue to do that. If you haven't, if you weren't junior three by that time, I think it was junior three, might have been junior two for two years, um, then you had to wait till senior to actually named that class a uh, Yangar Yoga Therapy class, or you did remedial, remedial teaching. So there's different things expected at each level. Um, I I don't know much about other systems, I think that may be true for some of them. Um, I I can't speak to that because I don't know. Um, Those are things I look, so, you know, when there are problems in the class, is that teacher taking care of the problem person and able to teach the rest of the class? Um, When you're doing adjustments or giving a verbal correction, do you stay with the student until the correction is made so you can see that they've made that correction? Are your eyes on them and you're still teaching teaching the class? There's, there's all this stuff to look at, you know? Um, how we might even, we haven't talked about this yet, but I'll jump in. How we assess whether a teacher is capable is ready to provide you know remedial therapy teaching um, we don't actually test for that. Do I think we should be? yes. We test for it on a piece of paper.
0: Mm-hmm. We ask certain
1: questions. They may fill in a table, or they may, you know, do a. I think when you we ask them to actually submit paperwork on uh, pictures and everything on a specific case, um, that's one way. Um, but the association itself, once the The National Association came into being, which was 1991 after the 1990 convention, which was when Guruji decided that in the United States we needed an Iyengar Yoga National Association. And he asked those of us who were organizing that. a convention to do what is necessary to make that happen. So I was assigned to that and I certainly did not want that. I wanted it to be democratic because Guruji was a Democrat. I mean, he, was, he believed in democracy. He believed that everybody has a choice. We all have a choice. Uh, whether we choose good or evil is comes from someplace. Um, so we presented to everybody who was there um, in their packet that they got. If a Nyangar Yoga National Association or do you think a Nyingar Yoga National Association Association should be established and. If you do. What do you think are it is its purpose aside aside from what were the purpose, you know, the goals and objectives, because everybody all associations that I said earlier had the same purpose. And um, some were listed and lots of space given for anybody else's input and then. um, The papers were given to Peggy Kelly, and she collated everything, and towards the end of the convention, those people who wanted to, that came to an organizing meeting, and um, overwhelmingly, the people felt there should be an Iyengar Yoga Association, and that its main purpose was assessing for certification and communication between Pune and the, the Uh, associations so that made Guruji very happy and uh, he uh, you know we were all staying together at Bonnie's uh, at a house close to the convention center um, Steve Smith's house actually and um, so he came up to me and he said Gloria. I'm very happy, you know, about this convention. The community has come together. That was our goal as six people. And he said, and he didn't teach at that convention. Teachers taught in little rooms, and Guruji went around to every room and listened and intervened and did what he wanted to do. And so then he said, um, I think I'll teach the last day of class because no one was no one ex- was expecting this. And I, you know, I said, oh, that's and don't tell anybody. Okay. Which meant having to make sure we had the room for everybody to teach, you know, for him to teach and everyone to be in. And all the props that were in all of these different rooms moved to this room. And um and this room, we didn't have a room. That large room, which we all met in and had dinner in and everything, was not seen to be needed on the last day, so, so we, um, so I had to find the manager of the place and said, "We need this room." And he said, well, lucky you, it's available, but it will cost you this much money. Probably the most expensive class anyone has ever been to. Um, but he was really happy with everybody. And I think people were happy that he taught that taught that class. Um, it's actually on video. So people can, I think, get that. This is my dog, Pepper. She <laughs> only has one. She only has one eye. Um, She's a rescue, right? And she's spoiled rotten.
0: Um, (laughs) She's a beautiful dog.
1: She's a cutie. She's a a real cutie. But she is spoiled. She goes to the spa. She gets very (laughs) fictitious. She's very spoiled.
0: So, Gloria, we've spoken about so much today. And we've spoken about your journey with Iyengar Yoga, and also some of your thoughts regarding teaching and mentoring and even studentship, and what all of those things have meant to you over the years. If you could speak to teachers who are either newly certified, I, I know that we just had a cycle of assessment within this Zoom context, if you could speak to teachers who are newly certified, who are really wanting to stay true to the teachings of Iyengar yoga and stay true to this tradition, uh, what would you say to them? Practice.
1: You have to have a daily practice no matter what. So when I hear young people saying, oh, you know, I, I teach, you know, 14 classes a week, I just go, no way. Um, and i understand the need to earn a living but when we first start out and we're first certified you can't expect to earn a living teaching teaching yoga of any you know yoga so you have to have other income you have to have a another job so to speak i did certainly did and i had a son and um By that time, I was a single mother. so um, And I was fortunate. His dad took him a couple days a week. But I had to have another job. There's something you want to do. And in order to do it, you also have to do something else. It's fine. Make sure that whatever else you're doing is um, good work is in line with the yamas and niyamas you're not doing anything illegal or anything um, yeah practice and you know stay with your mentor you have someone that you can talk to and you can uh, talk about philosophy or um trouble you're having with an asana, or many of mine say i'm I have it in trouble with the student it's you know they have this problem or this problem, or even a relationship problem with their student you know, and you know sometimes that happens, you know we even mentor and students grow apart or something happens, you know but at least talk it over and let the mentor know that things aren't going, or the mentor should also let the student know, this is not going well with me. I think you need to find someone else to help you. Or um, sometimes the student, how do I say it? Outgrows the mentor. It's very possible. And it's very wonderful. It's also very, very wonderful that your student has progressed beyond your own capabilities and knowledge. It, of course, um, And you've helped them to do that. That's wonderful. You know uh, Be patient, practice, be observant. First of yourself, take care of yourself, or you can't take care of others. Another guruji gem. Um, yeah. First, it's the first time I met B.K.S. Iyengar in yoga in person was in Pune in 1988 when I went there for the first time, and we were in some supine posture on the floor i don't even remember and he came over to me and he looked down and he said didn't i write you and tell you to put a weight on that sternum clavicular joint and i nodded and he said well so i had to get up and get a weight okay and um How did that come about? I had popped my sternoclavicular joint. And the teacher I was working with at the time, we did everything we could think of. But it wouldn't go back in. So I had x-rays taken, x-rays, because bones you can see, right? Sent them to Pune. Guruji wrote back and said, if this woman is capable enough to do the following, it will help. Well, luckily I was able to do those asanas and it popped right back in. Now he never saw my face. Didn't really know my name, or maybe he did, I don't know. But in a class of over 90 people, where there are, I guess, 80, 90 people, lying on the floor, he recognized my bones. So I had to tell that story because I'm glad it that came up to tell that story because he's an amazing man. An amazing man. And my my other association with him was uh, mostly about organizations and organizations around the world. He somehow made me in charge of that. I don't know. It's very difficult to do anyway.
0: Gloria, (laughs) this has this has truly been a pleasure and an honor to be able to sit and speak with you and to hear about your life and your stories and everything. So I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for being here and sharing so generously today.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for asking me and thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Gloria. And for those of our listeners and viewers out there, if this is your first time joining the Michael Bryan podcast or if this is your hundredth time, I just want to thank you for continuing to support this work and continuing to listen to these stories from these amazing teachers because it's your support that makes this possible. So. Once again, if you want to share this interview with others, please feel free to share this interview with all of your yoga and mindfulness loving friends because more people need to hear about stories like this. So, until next time, I'm your host, Michael A. Bryan, wishing you love and peace and hope. Until we meet again, have a good one. Bye-bye. Gloria Goldberg. Oh, you're gone. Thank you so, so much for this, Gloria. Was, this was really amazing.
1: Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for, you know, giving teacher, teachers the opportunity to tell their stories, I guess. And, you know, I hope it comes across how important this particular subject is in our lives.
0: Definitely.